everybody, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe poor execution is one of the biggest reasons businesses underachieve. But what if you could turn execution into a strength, into a competitive advantage? Well, we partner with your management team to help you solve your execution challenges and unlock that hidden potential that exists inside our organizations. And did you know you could be losing out on customers right now without even realizing it. So in just a few minutes, I'll be joined by David C. Baker, where we're going to be discussing how to properly position your business so you can grow it with customers you love working with who will also pay you a premium to do it. Imagine that. And David's going to share some of his time-tested concepts and approaches that has made him and his clients so successful over the years and so that you can do it too. And can you believe that we're a year into this? So a year ago this week was basically ground zero for pandemic uh, lockdown and all the things that we have been through. And I don't want to miss an opportunity just to thank our wonderful community that has uh, embraced Unleashed and the leadership uh, and the, the camaraderie and just the connection that this platform has allowed many of us to, uh, to experience. And so we're grateful for that. And uh, we're certainly applauding everybody and all the work that you've been doing with your teams for the last year. I also want to thank some of our partners that helped bring Unleashed to the world. And first of all, the Edmonton Community Foundation, they do such a great job of connecting donors with Edmonton area charities. Just one example is very early on in the pandemic, they donated over $100,000 to the Mental Health Foundation. And that's allowed more than 50,000 Albertans struggling with mental health through this pandemic to access daily resources just by sending a text message. And uh, they can't do it alone, so they need our help. And you can actually get started uh, helping the Edmonton Community Foundation make a difference for as little as $50. You can find them at ecfoundation.org. I also want to thank our friends at Project Forest. So Project Forest is a unique startup concept where they're connecting corporations with their environmental goals by reforesting the Canadian landscape. And they're running a contest. That's right. So they're giving away $250 for landscaping trees. And believe me, $250 goes a long way. Like you could actually drop off seedlings to all your neighbors in your neighborhood and uh, really be a rock star. And they want to hear your tree stories. Yes, your tree story. So it's basically sharing your favorite memory uh, that you have, your favorite experiences that might involve a tree. So maybe you built a tree house as a kid, or you had one, or you helped your children build one. Well, they want to hear those things. And you can email those stories to info at projectforest.ca, and they're going to draw for that $250 gift card in April. And I also want to send a big thank you to Ted and Trish at Insight. And they're actually the reason I met David Baker. So without Ted and Trish, uh, David wouldn't be here today. And uh, they're owners at Insight. So Insight's a strategy firm specializing in growth and post-merger integration for mid-market and privately held companies. Insight's real expertise in, is in strategic planning, communications, and stakeholder engagement to help clients get a better understanding of their market to clearly articulate their value and build growth-oriented strategies. A number of our clients have worked with Insight and it's rave reviews. So please reach out to Ted and Trish and their team uh, for some help. And I wanna welcome now David C. Baker to Unleashed. And we've been waiting a long time to have David on. This began back in June where I first became aware of you and graciously he's decided to uh, and agreed to join us here today. Now, David helps entrepreneurial experts make better business decisions. He owns his own marketing communications firm and management consulting firm focused on helping entrepreneurial experts 
make better business decisions through writing, speaking, and advising. He's the author of five books. He typically speaks at 30 to 35 conferences per year. I hope we get back to that soon. And has done in-depth consulting with over 900 small independent firms. David work, David's work has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, uh, and Fast Company. Uh, David has also spoken at multiple TEDx events and sits on the advisory board for the Graduate Design for Social Innovation program at VSA in New York City. His hobbies include teaching motorcycle racing with the Superbike School, photography, flying airplanes and helicopters, and custom woodworking. And a few months ago, he became the proud owner to a puppy named Frida, who's not really a small puppy. This is a fairly large dog. Uh, David, welcome to Unleashed. Uh, thank you. Really good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. I, I was supposed to be here earlier and got sick, so thanks for rescheduling me. Uh, well, we're grateful and we're glad you're okay. And uh, that ended up being a fun moment uh, between Ted and I back in December when we had to uh, we had to sort of adjust on the fly there and uh, uh, very much anticipating this conversation now. And David, I have to admit, though, if I've learned anything in the last year from you, it's that you have some very strong opinions. So while I was excited to have you on, there was also a certain level of trepidation that you might start telling me that all the marketing stuff that we're doing is wasteful and getting us away from the core of our business. So uh, we, we, uh, I enter into this conversation uh, lightly, but it, it did make me wonder, have you always had such strong convictions and, and where does your conviction for how to really run and scale a business, where does that come from? Oh, I hope it comes from science, right? But some of it probably comes from personality in that my assumption is that um, the most of the world that believes something, we probably ought to look a little bit more carefully at it. So I have this natural skepticism. In the end, I'll end up saying, yep, they're right about this. And then sometimes it's like, no, I don't think they are, right? And I've always been struck by the fact that that scientists that have expanded our knowledge have always had all kinds of pushback at the beginning, like the idea of the earth is round or there's gravity or whatever. Nobody believed those things at first until the whole world came along. So I think of myself sort of as a data scientist who's a little bit skeptical out of the gate. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. Uh, You've, you've dedicated a lot of your professional life to you know, becoming the expert's expert. That's kind of uh, how people describe you, David. Like, what caused you even to go down this path of becoming an expert for experts in the first place? I think it was, this is not a sexy story. I really need a better story here, but it was really more motivated by shame uh, than anything. So when you're writing an article for public consumption, you can get help, you can you can change it, you can get feedback, right? But when you're speaking in front of a group of people, whether it's 50 or, or 5,000, there's the opportunity for a lot of public shame. And because you get something wrong or you slip and say something that just isn't appropriate. And I wanted to avoid a lot of that. And I discovered that it was, the world was too big to be an expert in everything. And so that started, me down this path of saying, okay, if I'm going to deepen my knowledge a lot, I'm going to have to narrow it. I'm really curious about all these other things and I'm fine exploring those on my own. But if I'm asking people to pay me a lot of money for something, I better really know what I'm talking about. And when you make that commitment, you are essentially giving yourself sort of a I don't know, like a hunting license, as opposed to going out your property and shooting anything you see, 
a hunting license is for a very specific thing that requires a certain time of day, knowing certain habits. Um, and, and that's how I view an expert is like knowing something really specific. It, it can't be, a, it can't be just that alone though. It needs to be much more broad or they become really weird. Right. So they have to have deep expertise that's in a broader context. Yeah. So you certainly uh, walk the talk and live what you teach in that, in that regard, David. And I, and I think ultimately when, uh, when our conversation is over today, what I'm hoping is that we challenge some assumptions about the way companies are currently doing their marketing and that we equip them with some tools so they can find more customers who will pay them more to do it. And I think, I mean, ultimately, if we could just work with people that we actually liked working with, how much stress would that relieve from us? And I, I'm thinking there, there might be a couple of definitions so that we're all working off of sort of the same baseline of, of information. So there, there's a couple of things that I would love it if you could just define in your sort of, from your perspective, what they mean. And the first one is, so what is a position? So, so uh, staking up a position in the market. And then what is an ideal customer actually mean from your perspective? So, so explain it to me kind of like I'm the five-year-old in the room, which I often am. <laughs> yeah. And it's something, so I should probably clarify that when, when I talk about positioning, I'm talking to the choir and that a lot of the firms I work with, they understand that concept, but it's an odd concept because everybody else just calls it business strategy. It's, it's how to be less interchangeable in the marketplace and thus uh, enable lots of other things. But the primary thing in this context is enabling a slightly higher price premium because it's harder to find somebody who's a suitable replacement for you. So we live in the country right now, but we lived in Nashville for 25 years. And three blocks from our home were three pizza places, two dry cleaners, two gas stations, three grocery stores. And if, if a dry cleaner didn't do a good job, it was not an emotional decision for me just to go quit using them and use somebody over here. The availability of substitutes was very broad. And so none of them had any pricing power. The positioning is carving out a place in the marketplace that makes you not as interchangeable. All right. So if you that's part A. Part B is how does that translate into a great client for you? Because a great client for you is not just somebody who pays you a lot of money. It's somebody whose situation is such that you can really make a difference on their behalf, whether it's building the perfect house for them or it's managing their finances really well or consulting them or coaching them, whatever that is. So it's the answer to the perfect customer is very different from one segment to the next. But in most cases, it involves some element of these things that I'm going to mention. First is that they, uh, you have access to the decision maker. You're not working through a gatekeeper where you have to build consensus, keep making the same arguments. You're working directly with the decision maker, maybe not on a daily basis, but at least you have access, unfettered access to them. Second, they are experienced users of whatever it is that you're doing. So they, you don't typically want to break in a new customer because in that case, they have no idea how complicated it is, how long it takes, how much it costs. And it just gets exhausting to keep sort of orienting a customer to the fact that this is new to them. So that's that, that next area. Another area is that they're big enough. So you can't, you have to be really choosy with your expertise. You can't just scatter it out there 
um, everywhere willy nilly and and not be very intentional about how you spend that expertise. That means that you're going to have all kinds of opportunity that comes across the transom that you are capable of making a difference in, but it is not a good fit for you because it will spread you too thin. So just being really specific about what a good fit is and being public about that too on your website so that a prospect who comes to you can self-select themselves out of the running before you ever get an opportunity to compromise. And what you've, I'm gonna say something kind of facetiously here, but what your listeners have demonstrated over and over again is that you cannot be trusted with opportunity because you are constantly, you're, you're so in love with opportunity that you're constantly compromising on the quality of client that you want. So you, you have to acknowledge, all right, I'm an addict to opportunity here. I need to put this criteria on my website so that prospects who come to me never give me a chance to compromise. That's, that's how those two things fit together. So I think we have a couple hundred people right now watching that just said, hallelujah, uh, you understand the psychology of what it's like to be a business owner, uh, as well as anybody that I think I've ever heard describe it so succinctly, so quickly. So I understand the concepts. I, I think the concepts about ideal customer and positioning, fairly, I think, easy for us to sort of get. So with that ease, then why is it so difficult for so many companies to commit to a position and stick by it? Yeah. Well, it's kind of different in each case in that we're we're all humans that are driven by different things. Uh, you'll have some business owners that love they love the what other people would would be anxiety inducing, but they love I just describe it like this jumping into empty pools and inventing water on the way down. They just love the thrill of learning something new in a panicked way. And they'll be on the phone coming back to the office and talking to the staff and saying, you'll never believe what I just agreed we could do, right? And you've never done it before, but you've pretended that you were an expert in it. Some people are like that and they're afraid that if they stake out a very public positioning, those opportunities won't come along anymore. You have other folks who, who just need a lot of, I guess, therapy, or they need to go back to mom and dad and let mom and dad sort of infuse them with confidence. I work with a lot of people and I look at the work they do and I look at what they're charging for and I'm just thinking, oh my God, this is like, they're worth so much more than what they're charging. I don't get it. And I can say that to them, but it, it doesn't resonate because I'm not their mom. That's the person who believes, or your dad, the person who believes in you against all the evidence. And I'm also not the marketplace that's willing to pay you for that. So you, that's an, they feel like they're gonna run out of opportunity. And so they have to cast this broad net instead of being a fish, like a professional fisherman is fishing for one kind of fish and they have the boat, they know what time of day, they have the right equipment. Somebody who doesn't know what they're doing just buys the biggest damn boat they can, the biggest net, and they go out whenever they feel like it, and they drag everything back, and they've got 14 different kinds of fish, and they're trying to sort through it and make a business out of it. The, the really good, confident business people know exactly who the right fit is, and they make a public, courageous statement around that. And if they're afraid of opportunity or afraid of boredom, then they'll tend to wash out on that. Okay, so that leads us then to a pretty natural place of how do we do that? <laughs> like, how, how do we figure out what our narrow focus is? But then also, like, I, I think in the work, some of the work that we do, <clears throat> the, 
<clears throat> there's a scarcity mentality. There's fear that the market's not big right. enough, those ideal customers. So how do we then go about figuring out who our ideal customers are and whether the market's big enough? Yeah, I can answer that. Uh, my answer, so everything we've talked about so far, I would apply to everybody. The research I've done is a little bit more around the professional service side. So lawyers, doctors, accountants, counselors, coaches, and so on, marketers. Um, and some of this would apply to other folks, construction firms and so on, but it might have to be a little bit different. But what you're looking for is to make sure that there are some competitors. And this is counterintuitive because we're sitting around the table at night and we're brainstorming about a business and we come up with this idea that seems brilliant. And then we think to ourselves, why has nobody thought of this before? Like we could own this. And the reason, so then you wake up the next day and you realize the reason nobody's doing this is because they did think of it before and it was a bad idea. So there are exceptions to this, right? You Sometimes you are the first person with the idea, but generally you need to find a space that you occupy, that you claim that already has some competitors in. And that number is somewhere around 10. So if your work is in all of Alberta, then there should be 10 firms that do what you do at least. There shouldn't be more than 200 firms because then you're too interchangeable and you don't have any pricing power. So that's the first way to test it. The second way to test it is to see how many prospective clients there are. So you've defined exactly who a good fit is. And again, in the service industry, there need to be at least 2,000 of those within that addressable market. So if your client, if your client base is Edmonton, needs to be at least 2,000 there. If it's Alberta, it's 2,000 across the province. Um, and no more, ideally, than about 10,000. So two to 10,000 prospects, 10 to 200 competitors. That's a really good starting place. There are lots of nuance around it, but that's a way to cheat at it. I'm trying to just apply this to our own firm right now, David. And we um, we sort of look at the the demographic and the psychographic composition of an ideal customer. And so demographically, we're, it's mid-sized company, more than 20 employees, but then psychographics more important. They've got to be humble. They have to be ambitious and you know, humil humility and ambition doesn't really necessarily go together a lot. And, uh, and, and then we look at the market and say, okay, there's about 4,500 sort of mid-sized businesses in Edmonton, but maybe 20% of them fit the psychographic mold. Right. Is there a more sort of scientific way to really hone in on uh, uh, of that whole bigger group of like 4,000 companies to, to do a more scientific job to figure out how many actually would fit your psychographic uh, position? Well, that what you just listed is a very scientific approach and it is fantastic. That, that tells you that once you narrow it down just a little bit, you you may have, need to have a bigger geographic footprint to find enough clients. Otherwise, you'll tend to compromise on those standards and take a client that isn't as um, humble as they need to be or not ambitious as they need to be and so on. Um, but the other thing you could do after you've got that nailed uh, is to say, all right, what are the vertical industries that seem to attract these kinds of clients? And you'll immediately be able to answer that question because your client base is already populated with them. And then you focus on that. And then if you look at maybe expanding outside, and I'm answering this question because it's kind of the way that you're, the other listeners are thinking about this too. If you say, okay, our sweet spot is, are these three industries for mid-sized companies, but there aren't enough of those in Edmonton. So let's go, let's, let's expand to Calgary next. Then um, you, 
then you have to put yourself in the prospect shoes and say, why would I in Calgary want to use an Edmonton firm? Well, it's because of their expertise. I can't find that right here. So it's worth the distance issue. So that's how I think about those things. Yeah, no, that that's insightful and helpful. I want to go back to something else you said. So you're, you're suggesting that there should be approximately 10 competitors in the space. And that actually kind of surprises me because when I, when I hear that number instinctively, I think, well, that sounds like a red ocean a little bit. So then you identify there's there's 10 people in that space already. How do you figure out the nuance for you then to enter it in a way that's slightly different than those existing 10? Mm -hmm. So you there are several ways to do it. One is that you could have your own IP. I have four pieces of IP. So there are a lot of other consultants that do what I do in this space. They don't have access to that, that IP. So that's one thing you could do. The other thing you could do is to have a different mix of service offerings. So you're trying to solve problems that are packaged this way, and that's going to naturally attract certain clients to come to you. The other one, and this is kind of my favorite one, is just to develop a, a point of view or a perspective on these things and be very public about it. So you, nobody wants to hire assholes, that, that, but they do want people who are uh, humble and opinionated. They don't, they're not open-minded about everything. They're experts in this field and they have a perspective. Right? So in my case, I have a very specific perspective on a lot of things, other things I haven't had a chance to think about yet. So I'm really open and I'm actually open about the things I have a perspective on, but you'd have to really present a great argument to get me to change my mind on that. So all those three things together um, serve to differentiate you from the other nine, for instance, that focus on that. Uh, process is another big one, but you never want to depend on those other, other ways as primary ones. The primary one is who you address and what do you do for them. How you do it is the secondary way to further distinguish you from the other firms that would otherwise be viewed as competitors. Yeah, it, David, when, regarding the IP being a competitive advantage, like, I often think the IP is not as valuable anymore now that anything, you could literally search any problem on Google and find some pretty credible sources and solutions. How do you sort of make, I guess, how do you ensure that your IP is still really valuable in today's environment? Yeah. Yeah. And the Google reference is perfect. I talk about that in the book because if you, if you haven't felt like the world has changed, if the world hasn't been Googleized, then you might not have lived very long before Google came around in the late eighties. Right. But now, uh, so I live on a 61 acre farm. It's a hobby farm. Uh, so there's always something to do. Right. So, and it, usually it's something that I've never done before. <laughs> so it's a dangerous combination. I usually view it as an opportunity to go buy some new piece of equipment anyway. So now I bought this equipment and my wife's wondering why I did it. And I've got to do some work with it or otherwise it's a waste of money, right? So I go to YouTube. I always go to YouTube. And within, I have very specific expectations when I go to YouTube. I'm expecting that within seconds, first, I can get free information, second. And third, it will be information that will be very specific to what I need to do. There'll be some fool who has a video camera somewhere in the world who decided to just educate all of us for no money. And I'm grateful for those fools. It's great. So in that context, 
what's the value of your IP if everybody around us is willing, is, is expecting to find free, very specific information immediately, right? The answer to that question is that you still, you, uh, there's a massive difference between applied IP and unapplied IP. So when I'm writing my blog or I'm doing something like this, I am helping people, but I'm also, it's an advertisement for me because they're, I'm sort of, I'm giving them a peek of how I think about something, but I'm not actually applying it to their firm unless they hire me. Same thing is true for all everybody on this call today on this webinar. You you tell people how you think and you justify the fact that you're going to charge a lot of money for it, but you don't start applying it until they become a client. You have all of this toolbox full of things that you're really good at, and you're not likely to see anything new with any client engagement. But what you will find every time is this strange new combination of dysfunction that every client brings to the table. So you're pulling out different tools in different orders and using them in different combinations. So IP, now it's not easy, right? One piece of the IP cost me $320,000. That's how much it took to, but, but when I look at the kind of return on investment over 25 years, it's just been incalculable. Yeah, that, no, that, and this is so applicable to what we're dealing with in our firm uh, all of, all the time. And, and I think what my, one of my mistakes, David, is I don't necessarily look at our tools uh, or I look at our tools as the IP, but I haven't been thinking of the process as the IP. And that's, got, that's again, I think where I've, where I've been sort of getting a bit disconnected because it's our experience is how to use the tools is something that is very difficult for most, for most business owners for, for a variety of reasons. So David, you're, I want to take us sort of down like, you're, you're, I think I like how you're taking us down sort of this step-by-step, step, how do you start to narrow your focus? And something else that came up for me was then, uh, confirmation bias is a, is a real enemy that we all have to fight. And we make all kinds of guesses that we think are factual about what makes us different. So we've narrowed the focus a little bit now. We know that it's a space that we should go in. We have some assumptions about what makes us unique. How do we start to test those assumptions? Mm. Well, you've already tested those assumptions for years. So it's just a matter of sort of acknowledging that. So when you so you're coming with this more generalist approach. You've just grabbed business as you could as it came your way and you turned it into money and, and they got their value, but you're a little bit unfocused and not as expert driven as you'd like to be. You decide you want to focus. The, ex, the, the process of focusing is really a process of exclusion. So you're essentially saying moving forward. I still might accept a lot of this kind of work all over the place like I have, but I'm only looking for specific things. Whatever that smaller circle that you're drawing covers is work you've already been doing all along. So you're not inventing expertise. You're just simply saying, moving forward, I'm committed to one thing primarily, and that's that I'm going to learn at a much faster rate because of where I'm focusing now, but I'm already bringing all kinds of expertise to that table. So that it's, that's the big test to answer your question is, have you done a lot of that work before already? If you haven't, then it's not a viable choice for you. Yeah. How do we start to then courageously dip our toe into the price increase discussion? And, uh, you know, and I think in the last year in particular, a lot of firms, like our approach early on in the pandemic, David, was there was nobody that was going to really pay us materially to do what we did. So it was really focusing on just building community and being of service to others. 
And I think now we're in a place where things have recovered. Thankfully, we're, we're, we're in a pretty lucky position. How do you actually start to raise your prices and have the courage to do that? You know, the crazy thing is that this is mu a much bigger issue for us than it is for our clients. We think about this more than they do. And uh, the one way to look at it first is decide, are you in the service business or are you in the expertise business? If you're in the service business, then you really do have to deliver a value that measures their, you know, their, their price ceiling. You can't exceed that. If you're in the expertise business, there's actually an inverse relationship there in that people are, the more you charge them, the more likely they are to follow the advice. If you, if you get in trouble and you need a divorce lawyer, right. Um, you, and you find, and you find one and, and you get the pricing and you're talking about this with some friends and they say, oh, wow, that's, that's a lot cheaper than the one I had to hire. That's going to send a terrible signal to you. One of the, one of the other issues is, so there's scientific ways to think about pricing and there's more emotional, psychological ways. You, when should you raise your prices? Well, this is the emotional and the scientific. Whenever you start to get comfortable with it and the closes seem to get really easy, then raise your pricing. Uh, when you are busier than you wanna be and you're, you're flirting with the idea of growing, always raise your prices first. You, you want to view pricing as the primary filter to clean out unsophisticated clients or, or clients that are not a right fit for you. From a scientific standpoint, uh, that, that's a lot more involved answer, and it has a lot to do with what field you're in. Like if you're in a construction business or a supply business that has a lot of fixed costs and there's not a lot you can do. If you're more in the expertise or service business, you can do a whole lot more than that. And there are certain bands. So for instance, in a, in a marketing field or advertising or design, public relations, public affairs in Canada, the unpositioned firm band is 120 to 160 Canadian dollars. If you're if you're an expert with a narrow positioning, you can almost always get away with 160 to 220. And then you kind of work out something before. But pricing is not a financial tool. Fi um, pricing is a positioning tool. Think of it that way more than, a, more than something you've calculated in a spreadsheet. Yeah, I, you just made a bunch of people a bunch of money, I think, right with that response. And I'll get nothing for it, which is just typical of my life. Well, I think if the universe works out, though, it'll, it'll come back somehow with <laughs> positive vibes. It'll, you'll, you'll at least get a shout out on Twitter, I hope. Uh, so that's good. Now, it also occurs to me, though, that the, the, a lot of the, <clears throat> the price increasing comes from a position of strength. Now, what do you do when you don't have a lot of customers or you're rebuilding your business? How do you have the conviction and the courage to stick with only working with ideal customers then? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have the answer to that, but it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, but the answer is that you always think about your capacity and the opportunity. And you want to size your firm so that the opportunity is always higher than the capacity. And this gap, the difference between these two, this gap between opportunity and capacity represents your ability to say no. If you don't have the ability to say no, then you are, your pricing is going to shift to what the client wants to pay rather than what you want to charge. So if you are struggling to build your firm, 
you're at a different phase. And unless you're just very confident, bordering on arrogant, you're just going to have to get whatever the price the market can bear. And then slowly you'll start, the word will spread about how good you are and that opportunity will exceed your capacity. The big mistake that happens there is that whenever opportunity grows, um, very ambitious entrepreneurial leaders hate to waste that opportunity. So they just match that they match their capacity to the opportunity and they grow. And now all of a sudden they've just lost the ability to say no again. So when I get a separate question, which sounds like this, what's the ideal size for my firm? My smart ass answer is always the perfect size for your firm is smaller than the amount of work you're regularly asked to do. And that gap is what enables you to keep your pricing high. Right. That makes perfect sense. Not easy to get there, but that makes perfect sense. Now, what, what about, um, we grow our business with people that hopefully we love working with. So we develop all, and especially in a, if you've got any kind of customer intimacy model, your clients are your friends. And in a lot of cases, David, so how do you, if you're going to start to raise your prices and, and grow that way, it implies that some of the people that helped you build your business may not be customers anymore. How do you how do you navigate the emotions around that, and how do you still have strong relationships with people that you care about so much, but might not be an ideal customer anymore? Yeah, well, I'm an introvert, so I don't care about any of you don't that. Care. But, <laughs> you don't yeah. care. That's easy. Yeah. yeah, you need to come Just run our company, David. Send everybody to hell. It's all right. You're you're the kind of guy that can send them to hell, but you help them enjoy the trip along the way. That's right. I um. That it's a really good question. I what I always say to people that when we're like if we've just had one beer and we're just talking at a bar, I'll say, listen, there are cheaper ways to make friends <laughs> than to have them to have overlap between friendships in your business. But somebody like you, you're very you're warm, you're articulate, you like people. It's really hard for you not to get attached to them. But there's a reason why like in the medical code of ethics, you're not allowed to work on your children except in an emergency. It's because you can't make the hard choices. There's, there's something about being an expert that allows you to speak into a situation what really needs to be said, even when it's going to upset the apple cart a little bit. I think that you should enjoy the people that you work with, as in your clients and obviously your team. And they should enjoy working with you, but there should be uncomfortable moments all along the way. And a very small percentage of those people that you work with as clients would be texting you randomly at night, talking about sports or politics or whatever. I think it's better to keep that separate because it's hard for us to operate on our own kids when we love them so much. Yeah. And that's, that's difficult. Um, Difficult for sure, uh, for lots of reasons that you mentioned. I, David, I always uh, often think about building a business like a game of whack-a-mole and, and you, you figure out one problem mm -hmm. and another one pops up or the better you get in one area, it puts pressure on another area. And regarding the work that you do, so companies want to create an environment that attracts the best and brightest talent available in the marketplace. It's, that's a no-brainer. That's an obvious statement. But what happens when you have those kinds of people in your organizations is they want lots of autonomy, they want to grow and learn, and they're often very creative, clever, and they've got tons of ideas. How do you focus the ideas in a way that's going to be complementary to your core, not a distraction, while at the same time not disengaging these amazing people that are now part of your uh, part of your company? Yeah, that's. Uh, I only have 
one team member now, but in the firm I ran before this, this part of my life, it was a much bigger firm. I understand that for sure. It's like the last thing you want is a team that just simply takes direction, doesn't push back, doesn't innovate. Um, I, I don't, have you ever heard of the EOS system? It's, um, it, it's this, I have nothing to do with it and I don't use it myself, but it's this model of, of recognizing that some people are visionaries and other people are implementers. I don't think that's the language, but it's the notion that we need to listen to all of these other ideas, but we can't let it take us off the main path of discipline. We, if we follow all these new ideas, then we'll never get anything done. So it's carefully choosing, listening to everybody carefully, prioritizing, putting our own oxygen mask on first, so to speak, but always having this spirit of innovation in the firm, which shouldn't come from just a few people, but it should be like you're every six months or whatever makes sense in your field to set back and say, all right, how would we design this business from scratch if we weren't already doing the way the things that we are now? And you let people have a conversation with you and nobody's thinking about, oh, well, if we do that, I won't have my job. No, they're all just like, this is fun stuff to do. We're, it's what keeps us alive. I think like, so the audience today, uh, the folks that you and I are speaking with and sharing with, they are all, one of the things that, that, that unites all of them is that they're risk takers. They're, they're comfortable with taking risks. They're not risk averse. The other thing that that's common in this whole group today that, that we're talking with is that they, they love learning. Like when, when they quit learning, when then they start dying and that's how they feel. But if you take that too far, your business can become sort of this natural extension or exploration arm and you come back to work on Monday and they're like dreading, Oh God, what book did Jeff read over the weekend? And now we're going to do something all different. We did something different last week, right? You can't be that far, but it can't be. We uh, it's the same Jeff we heard last week. Like, no, Jeff's got some new ideas. How do we fold this in? So there's this, this good sweet spot, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, that makes lots of sense. And I mean, I think, open conversation with people and I and I think perhaps the more focused and clear you are about the of what makes you unique in the marketplace that might just help in and of itself because so many companies are not good at knowing what makes them unique and if we could just figure that out first and then do a really good job of communicating that to all of our employees it I wonder if it has a way of centering the creativity in a more focused way to begin with right right yeah hard to say possible what, David, uh, what about lead generation? Like, do you do you see some sort of best practices in that area? And uh, no, we're always focused on lead generation, but what are some sort of maybe do's and don'ts of, of really effective lead generation if you've got some ideas there? Yeah, well, it depends a lot on the business that you're in, but I, I'm a huge believer in lead generation because I want to keep that gap between my capacity, my opportunity. And so that's so important to me. And I think of it as a, a big flywheel that takes a long time to spin up. But then once you keep it going, you could skip something for a week and it won't lose that much speed and so on. And it gives you that. So then if you take that step a little bit, take that one step further and think about, okay, the building's on fire. What's the one thing I need to grab after all the people are safe? It's, it's the list of 
of people who are engaged with how I think, and they might hire me at some point, right? So I can get very specific with my world. It'll be a little bit different for everybody else's world. But in my world, there's 42,000 or 41,000 principles of firms like the ones I work with who've signed up to get my weekly email. So that is such a privilege to me. And I have to be I have to be disciplined about sending them really something really useful. It's not spam. It's something that I want them to read. First of all, read and not ignore. And they need to say, oh, I kind of get what he's saying. I don't agree with that. Or that's so good. I'm going to forward it to somebody. That's and and I, I also want part of that lead generation stuff needs to be a button you can press that will get you more work. That's at the opposite extreme of the way most people do it, which is around word of mouth and referrals and or maybe even outbound where you're picking up the phone and calling people. For one thing, the more you are an expert on that ladder, the less you're looking needy. It's more that people need to come to you, right? You don't have brain surgeons cold calling to say, hey, you need something today? You know, it's it's more everybody knows whether they need brain surgery and they're going to find the best one when it happens. Like, And that's how people need to think about you too. The lead generation needs to be such that you're engendering the right kind of communications with them, whether it's on social media or a list like that or whatever. And then um, so that when it's time, they will reach out to you and then you can respond. The, the sales process changes completely before and after that flag is flipped. When they haven't given you specific permission to sell to them, then it's just awkward. But yeah. when they have expressed some interest, they are they're ready to listen. And it's a very different conversation. It's fun. It's not a it's not pressure. Yeah. And I certainly want to own a business where referrals is the are the icing on the cake sources right. of customers, not the primary. And and that takes a lot of work to get there for sure. Now, what about I, I saw you commenting a little bit on call to actions recently mm -hmm. on and, and kind of some commentary that you're seeing some mistakes being made with calls to actions on websites. Can I wonder if could you I just I, it wasn't a question I had prep, but it just you, you, yeah. you jogged my memory. Yeah, this reminds me again, I should be off. Nobody should allow me to be on Twitter. I kind of use that as my experimental personality. What I, what I was saying is that a lot of firms are making a mistake in that they are not, they're not defining all the many steps that a prospect might be taking to move from an uninterested, maybe even an unknown prospect, they don't know anything about you, to wanting to buy from you. And your website should be a place where it's not just a, a binary choice. Don't hire them or hire them. There should be this, there should be multiple steps, but the main one is, hey, I would like to stay on your mailing list or learn more about you, but I don't want a salesperson to call me. I just want, I just want to, uh, I want to be more aware of what you're doing. And then if I need you down the road or if I want to explore who a good fit is, I might reach out to you, but don't sell to me. And, and so too many firms are using this call to action where it says, call for a free quote or call for a consultation. It's like, well, what if I don't want either one of them? What if I'm impressed with what you do, but I don't need you right now? Give me a way to sign up for your regular stuff. Yeah. And again, the, 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 the less desperate you are for a customer, the easier it is to be patient. And that, I think that, Right in there, right in that, David, like that's the hard part for us as business owners. If, if we are not overflowing with customers and opportunities, 
it's very difficult to not stay the course. Like, I, and, and again, is there any, any magic formula to, to the patients to stay the course? Like, how do we do that? When we got, we got mortgages to pay, we got employees to feed, mm-hmm. like all those kinds of things, all those pressures. I think we're not patient when we feel pressures that are difficult to manage. And so I think the answer is, is to manage those pressures so that the business, what I see out there with so many businesses is that I picture the business owner sort of beat, got coal all over them and they're wearing an apron, they've got a shovel and they're, they're throwing coal into the engine to keep it going. It's like they're feeding a machine all the time. And when they, they roll the clock back and they think to why they started this firm in the pla- in the first place, it was like they already had experience in the field probably and they didn't like their boss and they were a terrible em- employee. So they said, I want more freedom, I want more impact, and I want more money. Now, fast forward eight years, they're feeding coal into the machine every day. They're working longer hours. They don't enjoy what they're doing. They feel trapped by the constant expenses they have, and they don't feel like they can afford to lose a customer, so they grit their teeth and just take them. That's, that's where not running a business really well put you slowly into this trapped position where it, the business, you need to own the business. And for too many of you, the business owns you. I want to cuss right now and I'm not going to, but it's like, okay, it's you, the business needs to be your bitch. Not, it's not the other way around. And too many of you feel like the business owns you now and you don't have that opportunity and freedom that you were so excited about in the beginning. Some of you are making good money and some of you aren't. Some of you could quit your job tomorrow and go work for somebody else and make double the money without the financial risk and without the management hassle. That makes no sense in my world. All right, that's the, that's the David I was expecting. There we go, there we go. So, uh, David, you're telling me as well, you're about to launch uh, a sort of a new entity here uh, and a mergers and acquisi- uh, acquisition practice, an M&A practice. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, about what you're up to there. Yeah, so I've done M&A work for 18 years now, a lot of it, 159 transactions, equity transactions, done about 400 valuations. But it, it feels to me like the the industry doesn't have the kind of firm that I would like to see that's dedicated to that. So we're pulling that out of the main consulting and starting another venture called okay. uh, creativevalue.co. But but actually it's not as much about money or any of that. It's what I discovered was this unlikely connection between positioning and succession in that I'm like, I'm doing webinars for people saying, all right, what makes you an attractive option to buy? And and how do you handle that offer? And all those kinds of, and it's like dawned on me. It's like, well, if I'm, if I'm on the sell side and I'm negotiating with somebody on the other side of the table on the buy side, they almost never want to buy a firm that isn't really, really tightly positioned. So that's been a part of my practice now, even if, and most people aren't at a point where they want to sell their business. They kind of would, you know, for a dollar on some Mondays, but most of the time they're not wanting to sell their business. Um, But I still make that a part of the positioning decision. And so I'll ask my question and some of these come from Blair Inns, my podcast partner. He's a Canadian, by the way. Yeah. So he speaks your strange language. But he says, all right, we've, we've narrowed down the positioning of the firm. Would I want to own that firm? Would I want to be responsible for new business in that firm? And then the question I added to his two first questions is, who's going to buy this place? Is it so unique 
that we'll get a premium in the marketplace. It doesn't matter if you want to sell it or not. It's just a good question to ask. Yeah. And we had a, uh, and I think that was a unique piece that you had told me there were just the, uh, the connection to, to succession, business valuation, uh, exit strategy that positioning has. That's that powerful stuff. So we have a question that comes in from one of your super fans, uh, oh. Justin Archer. Uh, he, I think he has a poster of you in his room and uh, he owns a successful ad agency in town here. And he uh, has a question around, uh, so what do you think of agencies opening offices in multiple cities? So I'm considering it, but every time we work through it, it always seems like a big expensive hassle. What have you seen work in this area? It was a viable strategy in the past for sure, because in fact, I remember when I moved to Nashville 27 years ago, no New York or San Francisco or London firm wanted to work with me. It's like Nashville. So I had to get a toll free number and that quickly changed back then up to about 10 years ago, it was important for especially six or seven industries. So if you were in fashion, publishing, packaging, uh, entertainment, you kind of had to have a presence somewhere. So if you were in, uh, you know, a little town in Iowa and you wanted to be in entertainment, you had to have an office in LA, right? Um, there's still a little bit of that, but most of the time the world has been de-geographied and it doesn't matter too much. You, uh, I, what's especially lame is to say, yes, we have an office in Rio and it's really just a contractor who works from home. Um, I don't think there should be any pressure to do it unless you have a huge recruitment issue. So I worked with a firm in um, BC, it was in Chilliwack actually, it's about 90 minutes east of Vancouver. And he was having trouble uh, recruiting people and even having clients take him seriously. At a firm like that, he ended up not doing it, but a firm like that might need an office in Victoria or Vancouver, right? So there's a good reason, but most of the reasons why people running firms like yours expand are not valid. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's good advice. Hope that was helpful for Justin. Uh, David, I've also heard you talk about the reasons that businesses fail. And, I've, and, and so you've made comments that businesses often don't fail because the quality of the work, they fail because the quality of their business decisions. And I wondered if you could elaborate on what some of those bad business decisions are that you see. Mm, yeah. So the first big business decision that, that is important to get right would be around positioning, which we've talked about. Another one would be uh, culture. So uh, thinking about, we tend to think of new business as a primary focus of a, of a principal of a firm, a president of a firm, because like the business wouldn't exist without this. And once we get the new business, then we'll find the right people to do it. But I actually think it's easier to find great clients than it is to find great team members. And so not having the right people on staff and and just doing that willy-nilly and not making it a very specific process. In fact, if we've been talking about positioning as a way to attract outside opportunity, your positioning internally is your culture. And I think you should have a lead generation plan for people all the time so that you're always building your reputation out there. That's one. Another one would be, this is a huge one. It's how you, how you handle financial decisions. So too many firms, maybe even some firms today listening, have debt issues and debt is a problem because it it, it you artificially you, you're basically allowed to grow temporarily rather than solving the problem that should have occurred to you because there was no money and you had to borrow it so what cash does is it becomes a natural filter for growth to slow down that that crazy growth process 
Um, but if you don't make good money decisions, let's say that you don't have a thick enough cushion and you lose a client and now all of a sudden you really need some work. Well, it's hard to be courageous at that point and not just compromise and take the client and then try to make the best of it. Most of the bad business decisions we make are not around the quality of our work itself. We're craftspeople, whatever it is we do. We're not going to compromise there. Most of the bad business decisions we make are around everything else. And as it turns out, your clients are, they're not experts in what you do. That's, that's why they're hiring you. But they are experts in how they want to be treated, the information, the information flow, the whole the process unfolds. And they're, they're likely to notice deficiencies there more than in the work. So it's really odd. You know, I think, all right, if I'm going to be really successful in owning a bicycle shop, I better have the best bicycles ever, but actually the bicycles need to be good enough so people don't notice with a couple good brands mixed in, but they really need to be treated well and, you know, run a business well. Anyway, that's yeah. the point. Yeah, good, good advice. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about podcasts. Okay. Uh, 54 weeks ago, if someone asked if I wanted to do one, I would have said never probably never, at least, uh, no interest in that, you know, red ocean, why would we do it when I can listen to Tim Ferriss on my way home, who will, you know, have, uh, you know, Barack Obama on and all of those kinds of things. So why would we ever do one? But I, I wonder if the landscape and the expectation is changing. How does a typical company evaluate whether they should do or keep doing a podcast? Well, I think it starts by understanding the primary reason for doing something like that, whether it's podcast or a series of webinars or a book, or it's, it's to force yourself to get smarter. That's the primary reason. So even if nobody hardly listens to it, the fact that you are risking public shame, which is a powerful motivator, that's the primary purpose that you do it. The secondary purpose is to engage enough people who are interested. So like if we use podcast as an example, the average podcast out there has 147 total downloads of an episode. There are more than 2 million podcasts. Uh, the average podcast consumer listens to seven podcasts a week. A fourth of those people speed it up and half of them never get to the end. Like your podcast better be, you better be really famous or you need to be very tightly positioned so that the people who want to listen to you feel like you understand their world exceedingly well. And it, every the answer to how do you test it is different in every case. But with a podcast, you don't really know if it's successful until you've done, I don't know, 20 or 30 episodes and you look at the downloads and then you start talking to people who come to you and say, Hey, how'd you, how'd we get connected? How'd you hear about me? And you're going to start to hear whether or not that's effective, right? The podcast I do, I don't think I've worked with anybody recently who hasn't been a regular consumer of it. It doesn't mean they came to me that way, but it's been, yeah, yeah it's been very useful. It's a significant touch point. Yeah, no, that that's, that's good. I guess I'm always you know worried for us and then our, on our client's behalf of what's a distraction and, and what is a value add uh, in the making and uh, not always an easy answer. Uh, some personal questions, David, now that we've been in this for a year, what's been the most challenging part of working through COVID for you? Oh, well, uh, we didn't have to change our lifestyle all that much because we live on 61 acres. There's nobody nearby. And we were really grateful in that we developed much deeper bond with some neighbors. We have some young neighbors who have four young kids who kind of lived over here several times a day. And that was great. Uh, the hardest part for me, I think, was learning 
how to manage the boundaries between work and play differently. So it felt like because we were missing the, like we didn't have the usual hockey playoffs, right? Um, we didn't um, that that we didn't drive to work on Monday through Friday and then stay home. We we were missing some of those transaction boundaries, and so it felt like it all blended together. I felt like I was on a permanent vacation with nowhere fun to go where I was, you know? And so just managing how to uh, motivate yourself, how to be hopeful, but also realistic. For me, it was really that boundary issue. That was tough. And I, I still am trying to manage it. Like in the past, I was in a different country every week usually. And so I could measure how busy I was by how much I was traveling. I'm not traveling now. I'm in this live switch camera studio that I built for this. And then I'm going to go over to the house and it's like, it doesn't, I don't know. Did I work today or didn't I? It's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's been it's such an interesting experience for, for all of us uh, in a very unique fashion. Well, David, that brings us to uh, one of our favorite parts of the episode, which is three in 30. And these are three simple things that anybody tuning in can start to do in the next 30 days to apply some of your approaches to their own businesses. And I wonder if you could share what those three and 30 are for you. You bet. So the first one, I kind of call this getting to know. So uh, start to pay attention to when a client or a prospect of yours asks a question and you don't have an immediate perspective on it. And you're thinking, oh, shoot, a uh, little bit of imposter syndrome here. I'm going to give them an answer. I'm not completely sure this is right. I need to think about that. So write down those 10 things that if you could develop a perspective on, you'd be a lot smarter with your clients. Next is deciding to stop doing something. So we're so much better at adding things to our lives I, like, I'll tell you what, folks, the biggest culprit here is a standing meeting for anything. Like any standing meeting for everything needs to be started out as a trial. Uh, you need to, before you add things to your life, you need to figure out what you're going to stop doing. And that's one of the biggest hindrances to our, our focus and our productivity is just doing too many things and not doing enough things well. And then also just set up one morning. I learned this from a fellow Canadian, Dan Sullivan, who runs Strategic Coach. I mean, I'm not Canadian. I mean, one of your fellow Canadians. And he, um, he says you divide every week into three days. So there are days where you do nothing. It's just rest. So I'm down in my woodworking shop then. Then there's days where you're preparing to really get something done. These are the days where you get 30 things off your plate and lots of little, they don't take a lot of thinking. They just take some time and organization. And then that leaves you one or two days every week where you do nothing except you develop a perspective, whether it's your podcast or write or whatever it is, research where, where you're just diving, doing the deep work as um, what's his name wrote that book says Cal. So, it's that those are the three things I would start at that kind of fit with the the subject that we've been talking about. Uh, that's terrific advice, David. And you know what? I a couple of things I want to say thank you for. Number one is thank you for your generosity of your time today and for joining us. I've been so looking forward to having a chance to meet you like this. And I also want to uh, just a personal thank you. You've been a real source of strength and conviction for me in the last year. I pay close attention to what you say. And it's because of all of the things that you have done in your career to work so hard to know what you're talking about. And you, the, the things that you do, David, have helped our entire team figure out what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And it's one of the key reasons that our business has survived. And I don't say that lightly. 
So I'm super grateful for you. It, it is such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's really kind of you to invite me. I had a great time. Thanks so much, David. And thank you to everybody else who, uh, who is tuning in today. And I want to remind you how to stay connected with us. So please reach out to David C. Baker and you can be found at davidcbaker.com very easily. Follow him on Twitter immediately and, and subscribe to his mailing list, of course. And if you have questions or comments for us, please send those to info at unleashresults.com and follow our own Twitter feed at Unleash Results for all kinds of tips and tools. And you can find the episode summaries right on our website as well at unleashresults.com and you'll find the Unleashed uh, drag down menu option there. We're also giving away some copies of one of David's books, The Business of Expertise. It's a fantastic book and you can just click on the, uh, on the appropriate link in the bonus offer form and you'll be automatically entered into that draw. And then if you are ready to take the next step and you want to have a conversation about how we might be able to help your own management team get great at execution, we want to invite you to apply for uh, uh, us to administer a net promoter score survey. So this dovetails really nicely into David's discussion today. How do you know how you're doing with your customers for real? Unbiased feedback? Well, it's to ask anonymous feedback. And so net promoter score will help you measure customer loyalty. We're going to do that for you for free. And uh, next uh, on the uh, list here is Bessie Box. So this is a really cool startup company in Alberta. They actually deliver grass-fed beef and hormone-free chicken and fresh fish right to your doorstep. You can get a 10% discount on your first order by going to the, their website. And you can also click on the offer uh, in the bonus offer form and you'll get sent that link and the discount code immediately. And I wanna remind you to join us next week where we're gonna be joined by Ohio State University researcher and professor Tracy Dumas. And she's gonna show us how we can actually be a great employee without compromising our personal lives and our family time. So a really important topic, especially with what's going on right now with work from home and all the demands that we're all experiencing. Can't wait to host Tracy. So in the meantime, everybody be well and never underestimate the opportunity you have as a leader to make a huge impact in somebody else's life. We'll see you next week.